Hello and welcome to Country Stride, the podcast dedicated to the landscapes, people and heritage of Cumbria and the Lake District. I've taken the road over rhinos and then hard knock passes and I've headed through Estelle Green and then turned up a valley few visit in the company of author, illustrator and our guide for today's walk, Mark Richards. Where are we, Mark? <laughs> If you believe the sign back there, we're by the Crown and Mitre. But actually, it's Mitredale. Misspelling, but never mind. We've got it right. It's the little valley that tucks itself in behind Estale and the High Ridge, which is, in effect, the backside of the Screes, the famous Screes. But anyway, we're in the quiet valley behind. A valley dominated by forestry plantations these days, isn't it? But a very quiet little backwater. I think mm. I've only been here once in my entire life before, mm. and that was probably about 35 years ago, I think. But rather lovely to come back. It's a charming little place, isn't it? Mm. It's a backwater. In fact, the water is not only flowing down the beck, but it's flowing out of the sky. We've had such a spell of fabulous Lakeland weather, haven't we? Beautiful springtime. Uh, it has broken. I can't say I'm massively disappointed. I'm, as somebody like yourself, Mark, who has a fell supply of water, I always start getting a bit anxious when it's too dry for too long. <laughs> so I don't mind this. The cloud seems to be shifting around all over the place, doesn't it? But it's um, definitely got a slightly grim outlook at the moment. Yeah, we'll survive. Anybody who loves being in the fells brushes aside this sort of conditions and just are grateful to be here. Very true. Now, today's podcast, we've got uh, a guest who we were fortunate enough to walk with before. I believe we went up Weatherlam with him last time we were together. But we're talking about something interesting today, Mark, we haven't really explicitly covered so far which is that sense of how we view the landscape and how we've done so through history, and very specifically this concept of the sublime Mm. that's been with us on and off, really, since people started exploring the mountains for recreational purposes many, many years ago. People who lived and worked in the hills, they bred sheep or cattle, they understood mountains, but... People who are not living here natively feared them up until uh, 200 years ago, let's say. It was just seen as a hostile environment. Yeah, and that then changes. And what's interesting is this series of changes happened through history over how we look at them. The Romantic poets had a view. More latterly, Norman Nicholson has been fascinating in how he's interpreted that historic shift. And, of course, we change... Even still today, how we look at these places, now we're looking at kind of wellness and the mental health benefits of these great landscapes. But we're going to look at that. We're going to pull in a few folk tales, a little bit of history as we wander. And what's our route, Mark? What are we doing? This is one of those expeditions that I did in the Wasdale Fells, sneaking up through the forests up onto the ridge of Winrig along that wonderful escarpment which on a glorious day just looks sublime because it's looking down on the lake and the great surround of fells that wonderful escarpment which leads to Ilgill Head and then down Straight Head Gill to Wasdale Head to the National Trust car park right at the head of the lake, Wasdwater Fabulous wonder, how many miles approximately? Six, six or so miles Six or so miles, it's one of those great ridge walks isn't it albeit far out west, doesn't get as many 
visitors as perhaps uh, many of the more classic horseshoes. Now, it's only about 2,000 feet of ascent. We'll love it today. And who's our guest today, Mark? As you intimated earlier, we went up Wetherlam in pretty chilly, wet conditions in the middle of winter. A couple of years ago, it feels like now. Up with George Kitchen. He's a man of the hills, and I'm sure he will give us a very good panorama of the emotional relationship we all have to these places. I can see George over there waiting for us by the bridge, so we shall uh, go and introduce ourselves and head up the fell. Bum bum. wet underfoot but it's not wet where I'm standing because I've got an umbrella which is <laughs> somewhat necessary. Gorgeous <laughs> to see you George, it's lovely to be back with you, it's been a while. Absolutely. Uh, we're in a lovely setting, gorse is out in bloom, there's some um, deciduous trees and coniferous trees and up to our right which is to the south is some felling of the conifers. Uh, the hills are a little bit misted but can you demystify our listeners into yourself? My name's George Kitching. I run a blog called Lakeland Walking Tales, but I also write the column for Lakeland Walking Magazine. I guess in both those things, what my interest is, is writing vicarious accounts of, of walks on the fells, but drawing in a lot from the history and the folklore that's steeped into the stones. You cover it so well. I love reading it in Lakeland Walker. If I open the magazine up, it's yours I go to first. Oh, I think a lot of readers will do that. You are renowned for writing guidebooks and functional guidebooks, but I think there's, there's also a tradition of literature. And a lot of the early guidebooks that were written were much more about pulling in folklore and, and the history and, and the wonder, our kind of emotional response to the landscape. Mm. But of course it wasn't always that way, you know, as you said in the introduction. In the 17th century, this was a place to absolutely be avoided and shunned. It was nobody's idea of beautiful, the Lake District. In fact, Norman Nicholson says... Um, he, he says the 17th century saw the mountains as the last defiance of disorder oh. among the colonies of civilization. <laughs> now, the essence of what we're going to talk about today in our endeavour to climb this amazing hill is to explore the whole notion of the sublime. What do you understand by that term? It's a term that gets misunderstood these days because people talk about the sublime and they think of things being serene or tranquil, which is really the opposite of what it means. In 1756, a philosopher called Edmund Burke brought out a book, Philosophical Inquiry into the Origin of Our Ideas of the Sublime and Beautiful. And he ascribed all aesthetic taste to two fundamental human instincts, one for self-propagation and the other for self-preservation. And he said, all things perceived by the senses, to some degree, appeal to one or other of those instincts. So he said, the things that are gentle and comfortable, pleasing, and it evokes sort of safety and comfort, appeal to the instinct of self-propagation. And he called those the beautiful. Whereas the things that are vast or grand and evoke fear or awe or wonder... He said, those are, are appealing to our sense of self-preservation. And he called that the sublime. Oh. So the sublime are experiences that are so utterly 
magnificent, vast, terrifying even, that they take us utterly beyond ourselves. So it becomes almost a spiritual thing, this idea that religions have, that you're humbled before God. Well, it's more like you're humbled before the mountains or the landscape that induces that, that level of fear and a sense of your own tininess and your own insignificance in the face of something so grand and vast. Go on to the lovely stone bridge that crosses the River Mite, which is uh, uh, very low at the moment because, of course, we've just had a period of three or so weeks of really dry weather. So today is an unusual day in that respect. And it's quite a broad bridge, so it must have had a, a definite purpose. It linked Estelle Green over the ridge to Santon Bridge. I'm intrigued by this uh, tree root growing over the bridge, so it just sort of catches your eyes an unusual survival from some tree that was once in the vicinity. Anyway, that's by the pie. Well, we want to look at this story, go back in time, and our first evidence of guidebooks and the sublime and how people were being introduced by particular writers. Can you give us a picture? Yes, well... The lakes having been ignored for years, suddenly there were three writers all around about the same time, which is about around 1770, 1760, 1770. And uh, these were William Gilpin, who was actually a vicar, and uh, he was wanting to um, build a school to educate the children of foresters and things like that. Now course, he, he was in the New Forest, wasn't he? He was, yeah. He understood the plight and how, how badly off they were and he wanted to help. He thought anything he earns, he could plough into his school. And that was one of his motivations to start writing books. But he loved the idea of the sublime and he picked up on the picturesque movement, which has really became a set of rules for um, devising good pictures, what made a good picture. But out went the old idea of sylvan idylls and beautiful landscapes. He wanted the sublime. He was much more interested in ruined abbeys than ones yeah. that were still standing and this kind of thing. He went around England on a tour, but he came to the lakes and he started to write about the lakes. Now, whether Gilpin really got the lakes in the way that later writers like Wordsworth did, I, I, I'm not sure. It sounds very much like he was going around scoring Helvellyn and Skidder marks out of ten to how well they fitted these rules. And in fact, Norman Nicholson is quite scathing about him in a way because he says... Um, you know, Gilpin thought he was reacting to, to artists like Joshua Reynolds who had all tried to paint this idealised idea of nature. And Nicholson says, but the worst that can be said to those painters is that they couldn't see the trees for the wood. But he said, the likes of Gilpin couldn't even see the wood. <laughs> he said, all, all they were concerned with was, you know, considerations of perspective and background and foreground and diagonals and gradations of tone. They were dealing with almost like with an abstract Absolutely. disconnected from the landscape, yeah. although they were trying to pretend they were involved in it. So they were sort of confused in there how they were relating to what. They were trying to reduce it to something that could hang on the wall of a London townhouse. <laughs> But alongside it was another writer, Thomas Gray, who was an academic and a poet. He came to the lakes and wrote one of the earliest guides too. But he used to walk around with a thing called a clawed glass, which was a little round plano convex mirror about four inches across, bound up in a pocketbook. So actually the view would be behind him and he'd be looking at it in this mirror with the idea of reducing it to the size of a picture postcard. 
you said it's easy to mock and you know, how many times do we catch ourselves looking through the viewfinder of an iPhone or, or whatever so it's have we really changed no indeed modern <laughs> iPhones have got this device that tell you what is the perfect view as well exactly <laughs> Nicholson actually has a bit more time for Grey because in his sort of poetic way of doing things he actually took a step towards the romantics a step towards Wordsworth and Nicholson says of him or of Grey's writing he says things seen things remembered things imagined are blended together into a delicate landscape that is half reality and half dream but in which the dream helps to clarify rather obscure that which is really there he's actually recording his emotional response to the landscape and this became a theme of the picturesque in the paintings the size of the mountains are vastly exaggerated and people start talking about these landscapes that are terrible and horrific but I mean that's supposed to be a good thing that's like they're, they're thrilling and exciting and that was the whole idea of the popular image of the sublime as came out and that's what started attracting people to come here and experience this although Gray was mocked by some of his contemporaries there was a story about him which is, is probably not true that he was so overawed by Skidder that he drew the curtains of his stagecoach so he could hide from it. <laughs> but I suppose it's how you feel, you know, when you first look up at Skidder or whatever, and it looks massive. And that is that feeling rather than the kind of actual perspective of it and the, the dimensions. It's, it's that emotional response. No, the early guidebooks are not like the guidebooks that I write and Wainwright and so on. Can you explain what they conveyed? Absolutely. I mean, nobody was expected to actually go and climb Skidder or do things in the early days. I mean, it was just somewhere that you came and looked at from Keswick. There were kind of tour guides in the city, more like travel writers, really, you know, places to visit and what you should see and what you should think of the landscape. So, Stand back and yeah. admire. Really. That's right. You mentioned Nicholson several times already, uh, who was a, a later writer. Could you just tell listeners who he was? Yes, yes, Norman Nicholson is, is a Cumbrian poet of the 20th century. And in fact, you did a, a very fine podcast all about him. But in addition to his poems, he wrote a few prose books, a few non-fiction books. But his favourite is called The Lakers. And it charts the history of the people who came here and started to write about the lakes and attracted people to come here. He talks about the, uh, the three cults of nature, he calls them, the, the picturesque, the romantic and the athletic. But what he says of those is these modern cults of nature are all symptoms of a diseased society, a consumptive grasp for fresh air. They've arisen because modern man has locked himself off from the natural life of the land because he has tried to break away from the life-bringing, life-supporting rhythms of nature, to remove himself from the element that sustains him. In fact, he has become a fish out of nature. We have this need for wild places and to be out. So he starts with Gilpin and Thomas Gray, and then he moves on to William Hutchinson, who also um, wrote a guidebook in this sense that we've just discussed. Hutchinson was remarkable really for his enthusiasm and his love of kind of antiquities and the folklore that surrounded it. He told a tale really of St John's in the Vale about Castle Rock. He was there in St John's in the Vale and it was just twilight and he was looking across and he saw this magnificent castle with turrets and towers and everything else and he said I must go there in the morning. And they said oh well you won't see it. He said well why not? And he said well it's enchanted by genies who protect it and when you get close they'll make it just look like a fractured rock at Castle Rock. <laughs> and this, this is another lead to the Rantics, really, because this inspired Sir Walter Scott 
to write his epic poem, The Bridal of Triamane. And if you look on Harvey's maps now, Castle Rock is called the Castle Rock of Triamane after the poem. What's interesting is Hutchinson is the first person to mention Wasdale. I think uh, Gilpin and Grey, I mean, for Grey, I think it would have been far too terrifying. <laughs> uh, but they, they tended to go throughout that central part, you know, route up through the lakes, Ambleside, Grasmere, Keswick, and everything was sublime. I mean, it was great if you could see it from Keswick, but venturing to Wasdale, that was too far out in the wild. And Hutchinson just mentions it as a valley infested by wildcats, foxes, martins and eagles. What's interesting is Walter Scott picks up on this in the poem. So, in his version, this enchantment on Castle Rock, hiding the castle, is put there by Merlin. But the events leading up to that start with King Arthur riding over Blencathra, which strangely calls Glaramara, but it's clearly <laughs> Blencathra, and past Scales Tarn and down the Glendromachin Valley and into St John's in the Vale, where he sees this amazing castle. So he rides up to the gate and it appears to be uninhabited, but he blows his bugle and the portcullis flies open and he discovers it's inhabited entirely by fair young maidens. And the fairest of them all is the Queen, Gwendolyn, who's only about 21, stunningly beautiful and takes a real shine to Arthur. And unfathomably, he, he stays for months and his kingdom goes to rack and ruin, he forgets his duty and he's just there. Where the link to Osdale comes is this was all a ploy. This was Gwendolyn's plan to ensnare him. It turns out her father was one of the old gods or one of the, the nature spirits that were enforced before Arthur, the, uh, the great Christian king. And the verse in the poem that it really explains where this was coming from talks about Gwendolyn and her father. And he goes, Her mother was of human birth, her sire a genie of the earth, in days of old deemed to preside over lovers' wiles and beauty's pride. By youths and virgins worship long with festive dance and choral song, till when the cross to Britain came, on heathen altars died the flame. Now deep in Wasdale solitude, the downfall of his rights he rued, and born of his resentment heir, he trained to guile that lady fair, to sink in slothful sin and shame those champions of the Christian name. So Wasdale is, in Walter Scott's mind, where the, the old spirits, the earth spirits, have been banished to. And this is an example of the folklore being pushed to one side uh, into remote places. Wasdale was remote. Apart from people coming from the sea, most visitors came from the east, as it were, from the south. So Wasdale was the place for such things to reside. Yes, indeed. And I think there's a thing. If we probably still have it, a fear of remote places. And so stories spring up. The one sense that you know, the Christian thing it, it comes in with the age of the enlightenment and the old gods, the old natural pagan festivals and everything being pushed aside. But at the same time, we have this kind of idea of remote places that, and again, a fear, you know, perhaps not a sublime fear, but a kind of real primal fear of them. And all kinds of stories go up, as they have in Mitredale. Um, so High Mitredale, the other end of the valley, is about as remote as you can get still in the Lake District. It's probably one of the least visited places. It's a magical place. I know there's a, there's a wonderful amphitheatre right at the head of it, which I, yeah. I, I find quite mesmerising place. And I think Wainwright said something well, about he it. He did. He, he said it's a surprising little place of rocks and trees and waterfalls around a green glade where one can imagine the fairies dancing. It's not fairies that it's famous for. It's the Beckside Boggle, which is probably Lakeland's most gruesome 
ghost story. And uh, it was popularised in the, in the late 18th century by a woman called Anne Rhee, who wrote a book. But it's an older story, I think, and she sets it in the early 1800s, but it could well be older. But it concerns um, a young couple called Joe and Anne Southard. He was a farm labourer and she was a servant girl, but they were very much in love and they wanted to marry. They worked very hard and they put away all their money and they were very careful with it until they saved up enough that they could buy their own farm. And that farm was High Mysdale Farm. We're on a packhorse bridge here, aren't we? And, and the whole idea was this used to be quite a well-used packhorse route that went up through High Mysdale and joined the Corpse Road from Rossdale Head to Westdale, so it was a way of getting to boot. Yeah. By the time they moved here, for some reason it had fallen out of favour. And there'd been an inn there at High Mysdale called the Nanny Horns Inn, but that had fallen into disuse and that was actually starting to crumble and was, it was derelict now. So they were right out in a very isolated valley, but they had each other and very soon Anne gave birth to their son, so they had a baby and they made a real go of the farm and it, it was doing really well. So well, in fact, Joe had to go to Whitehaven for a business meeting to sort of see who he could sell produce to. So he set off and Anne was left alone. And just as evening was drawing in, there was a knock at the door. And there was an old woman wrapped in a shawl, a bit agitated because she was worried that she wouldn't make it to Boots before it got dark. So Anne took pity on her and said, well, come in, you can stay the night here and go to Boots in the morning. So she sat her by the fire so she could warm herself and brought her a bowl of porridge, which she ate, and then promptly fell asleep. And a little later, Anne nodded off herself in the other chair. And she was woken a few hours later by a really loud clank. And she woke up and looked down and horrified. She said what had dropped from below the uh, old woman's shawl was a knife, but not a pocket knife or a kitchen knife. It was an open-class knife of the sort soldiers use. It was a weapon, a real lethal weapon. But what was worse, when she looked up, the shawl had fallen away to reveal not the face of a frail old woman, but a coarse-set thick man. So he was this man that inveigled his way into a house with this big weapon and a knife, and she was petrified. In a panic, over the fire was a cauldron full of hot fat she was going to make tallow candles with, and this had reached the boil, so she picked up a big dipper, filled it with the fat, and poured it over the man's head, and it went into his throat and down the throat and choked him to death in the most grotesque way. And when Joey returned in the morning, they went through his things and found lots of trinkets and treasures and things that he'd obviously robbed from surrounding farmhouses they thought well okay we've, we've done the world a favour we'll just bury him in the ruins and the man he horns in and that would be it but his spirit wouldn't lie quite quietly in the grave and he haunted them with such ferocity they had to leave and every single person that's tried to live there since has had to leave there's a building now now whether it's high Mitredale farm but it's a ruin or whether it's the man he horns in but it's gets the heart of our fear of remote places, I think. <laughs> Gosh, you. Underneath very tall trunks of pine trees that seem to reach up into the sky, and give us a little bit of shelter from what are now big drops of water rather than permanent drizzle. We're gaining height, but we're also in the dark depths of forest. Wonderful feeling with roots on the ground. So Nicholson gave us these three phases from picturesque to romantic 
And then, of course, the latter stage, athletic. So can you draw us into that romantic age? This is where people were really waking up to, to nature and the power of it and, and really fully understanding the sublime. They're throwing away the Claude glass, you know, <laughs> and the rules about making a picture. People like Wordsworth, ultimately, was... He was a pantheist. He saw God everywhere, in the trees and he the rocks. Forward. And I think what he identified was there was a kind of sickness in society. You know, the 17th century being so proud of the age of reason and we're above nature and all this kind of thing and everything was backward that was the Lake District or whatever. I think Wordsworth, in the simple farming, the fell farmers and the, the simple life here, he was seeing something that was actually a model for how life should be. That all the ailments of society came from the cities and our divorce from natural rhythms. There was a whole thing about exploiting everything. The Industrial Revolution was trying to exploit the landscape and Wordsworth saw just this simple way of living in harmony with it, which I think is we're still waking up to today. He did inspire a, a lot of Victorians to come to the lakes, but for those very reasons, I think. And Nicholson puts it beautifully, he sort of says, the first great thrust of the Industrial Revolution had overstretched itself. The muscles were beginning to sag, the energy to fail. In the parlours, the drawing rooms, the pews, all was still comfortable and secure. But in the back alleys, the rotten cottages, the slave factories, there was the strain and anger of a society at one and the same time vigorous and stunted, opulent and starved. In spite of all the clangour of the railways, the grasp and grab of trade, the grandiloquence of empire, the flags, the dividends, the harvest festivals, the brass bands, the gold watches and Prince Albert himself, there was hidden somewhere in every Victorian a tired rather frightened, rather lost little dog that wanted to crawl under the table and sleep. Now, for probably a lot of people in the rotten cottages and back alleys, there was no obvious way out, as Nicholson puts it. For the gentry, the manufacturers, the professional people, blowing their noses on the stench and stew of the money-grabbing cities would rush to the lakes to forget it all, at least for a fortnight. So suddenly we've got the lakes as the escape, you know, the balm, the salvation. And this is what Wordsworth had really predicted and, uh, and we've moved from it being a neat little thing to be put on a picture. It's, you were, they were trying to escape the cities to get here and interact and have that sublime interaction. And there is, of course, a very purposefully accurate link with Wasporter, which we're coming up to. As we said before, Wasdale was a place seen by Hutchinson, a place of wildcats and martins and whatever. But Wordsworth had a completely different take. He said, Wasdale is well worth the notice of the traveller who is not afraid of fatigue. No part of the country is more distinguished by sublimity. How fabulous. Absolutely fabulous. It's the emblem of the National Park today. Absolutely, yeah. And he was the first to really understand that, I think. You touched on this whole notion that fairies, goblins and beasties were relegated and ditched and posted out to the far west, which is Wasdale. But they were sort of rekindled by Wordsworth. I think so. I think mainly because he didn't see them as goblins and evil spirits and things like that. He saw them as the earth spirit. He saw them as nature, you know. The great march of Christianity and science and reason had effectively banished them to places like Wasdale. And yet it was Wasdale where Wordsworth rediscovered it and the power of nature and the, these kind of ancient ideas of interacting with nature and worshipping nature was something the romantics were reviving. So Wasdale yeah. is, is no longer the dark back of beyond, it's the centre 
and the skull fell and skull fell crag and all of this would become the great spiritual cathedrals if you like more than the, the little dusty churches with uh, just musty in books and mud pews that, that didn't have the same power as Wastdale and Wastwater and those tremendous fells around the head of the whole, lake. The whole spirit of mountaineering and yes. such like we're yeah. born here yeah well that's what we'll sort of explore <laughs> the mist seems to be lingering but we'll get, we know the view and I know our listeners know the view but we will convey it for our best of our ability when we break through the forest and get onto the ridge <laughs> we've made it goodness me that was Quite a, a moment coming up there. The cloud has lifted enough for us to see the foreground terrain, which is wonderful. But we, we came above Great Hall Gill, uh, and there was a very obvious path, and we started following it, and then realised we actually we were going down. <laughs> this is one of the challenges of the mountains. Once the mist comes down, you've got to stick with your compass and your map. The guidebook comes somewhere else down that list, and if you're in a party with people who are overconfident, you can end up going down paths. And we were talking, inevitably. But anyway, we've made it up to the top of Wind Rig. There's a neighbouring top just immediately to the south, a comparable height. And the, the day was what it should be, as it was yesterday. You would be looking out across towards Sea Talon, Middle Fell, Barrow, and then, of course, Kirkfell and Great Gable, and then the Skull Fells. They're all magically there on a good day from this point, as they will be along the edge, or would be. Uh, but Great Gable plays into this story, of course. So we've gone through the diversions of the sublime, from the picturesque to the romantic, and now through to the athletic phase. Now, the first climbers were in the Alps, George. Can you give us a picture how it led to here? Yes, they, it was called the Golden Age of Alpinism that started in about 1854 when Alfred Wills conquered the Wetterhorn. It ran for about 11 years and there was the Silver Age after that and it was, the, it was the done thing to do to go to the Alps and conquer mountains. But obviously the Lake District was close to home and had some of the same appeals so it started attracting people. Played second fiddle to the Alps in many, many ways until 1868 when um, Walter Parry Heskett-Smith climbed Nape's Needle. Now, people have been rock climbing before, you know, there's nothing new in it, but it was always a means to an end. It was part of the mountaineer's toolkit aimed at getting to the summit. Climbing Nape's Needle on Great Gable served no purpose at all. It wasn't going to get to the summit, it was a freestanding pinnacle. All you could do from the top of there was come back down again. So he did it just for the sake of it. And that really gave birth to rock climbing as a sport in its own right. And suddenly rock climbers were less interested about getting to the summit. They just wanted to do climbs. If you go up onto Score Fell, from, say, the foot of Lord's Rake up onto uh, Mickledore. The buttresses and things, they read like a history of English climbing. You've got Collier's Climb, Puttrell's Traverse, and Slingsby's Chimney, Robinson's Chimney. They're all just known by the names of these. Many of them academics, actually, used to flock up here to Wastale Head. And there are many stories about knights in Wastale Head in the billiard room when they try and get around the room without touching the floor. And uh, preeminent among them was a guy called uh, O.G. Jones, or Owen Glyn Jones, although he claimed his initials stood for the only genuine Jones. 
he was a very distinguished climber, but he was also a fantastic author. And he wrote with a real humour and joy de vivre. And I, I'm not a climber, but I, I love his book. You cannot help but smile reading some of his accounts. Illustrated by the Abraham brothers, who were the great mountaineering photographers, whose uh, studio is where uh, George Fisher's shop in Keswick is now. I think the upstairs of that was their studio. They accompanied uh, OG Jones several times and took some iconic pictures of people on Schoolfield Pinnacle in tweed suits and nailed boots and whatever. But the three of them made two uh, groundbreaking climbs, one Walker's Gully on Pillar Rock and the other Schoolfield Pinnacle itself, which I think OG Jones described as the most sublime object in the whole of the Schoolfield Massif. I was absolutely awed with it, much as Wainwright was later. What people were doing were going up cracks and chimneys and things, and they went straight up the rock face. And uh, George Abraham said of it later, he doubted many leaders other than O.G. Jones would have had the courage to proceed beyond, there was a ledge, and where the ledge finishes, the last direct, he doesn't think many other people would have proceeded beyond that. This is the most amazing thought that people yeah. got onto open yeah. faces yes. and believed that they actually could keep going. Well, a, a rock uh, climber that I was talking to has done that climb, and he said there's, uh, there's an amazing bit in his narrative where he says, um, imagine a step that isn't there, Put your foot on it and push off. <laughs> like, that's what you have to do when it works. <laughs> Psychological footstep yeah. and handholds. The daring do that they had and the attitude was was phenomenal. You know, and people hadn't done these things before. But I guess the sublime and move from this poetic rapture into a, into a physical challenge that took you out of yourself and you had to go beyond what you'd done before. It's what pioneering is all about. Yeah. Right, well, we've got to one summit, and that's very good. So we've done Windrig. Ilgil Head beckons, but it's a long way across a very long, soggy saddle. And on a good day, you'd be clinging to the edge. But today, I think we'll just stick to the ridge uh, and uh, wade through a, um, a, a brace of ponds, uh, tarns that uh, occupy the boggy area in the midst. But it's, uh, well, it's, it's a good little wander at the best of times because we haven't got an ascent at all, really. I mentioned the brace of pools and we've come upon them now. We've come through a like a Mesopotamian gap between them, which is the ridge path. Now this is a significant spot actually, or should I say the escarpment out of sight in the mist away to our left. There was an absolutely tragic story associated with broken rib, the arete that drops away at that point that we can't see today. Can you give us a bit of a feel for what that story was, George? Yeah, it, it was a big story in the press in, in 1983. Uh, was a French engineer called Francis Marr and his wife Michelle in July received a postcard from their daughter Veronique saying, uh, it's very nice here. I'm enjoying myself. I'm, I'm disappointed I can't speak more English, but I'll, I'll see you in two weeks' time. Um, but in two weeks' time, Veronique never arrived home in Paris. She'd last been seen at Wasdale Youth Hostel on the 31st of July, and she left saying she was going to walk to Grasmere. A long way from there. A long way, but she was an experienced fellwalker and was on a fellwalking holiday. Nobody knew where she was. She didn't arrive in Grasmere. She hadn't been seen since. She didn't come home. And her mother would tell the press, it's so unlike her. She wouldn't just do this. She wouldn't just take off. She'd tell us. I'm afraid she's been kidnapped or killed or had some kind of terrible accident. Detective Chief Inspector Steve Reed launched the biggest search that had ever happened in Lakeland. 
there were mountain rescue teams, tracker dogs, police units, volunteers were scouring this whole area for Veronique and they just couldn't find her. Chief Inspector Reid would later tell the press it was as if she vanished off the face of the earth. Christmas came and went and still no sign. And then in early 1984, a diver named Neil Pritt was diving in wasp water. Now, wasp water is England's deepest lake, uh, and its deepest part, it goes down to 79 metres. I think divers call that the abyss. There's this bit where, the, where it drops away. Uh, and Neil's quite close to that, diving in about 34 metres. Now, 40 is the limit a diver can go to. But he saw what he thought was a rolled-up carpet. And in normal times... He might have just dismissed that. But aware of the hunt for Veronique, he thought, I'd better go back and check that. And his darkest suspicions, unfortunately, were confirmed. That it held the body of a woman. Police divers came down and brought her to the surface. But what was immediately obvious, it wasn't Veronique. Veronique was 21. This was a middle-aged woman. And, of course, the tabloid pest picked it up and called her the Lady of the Lake because nobody knew who she was. But the clue, for one... The cold had preserved her. All her features were really recognisable. But she was wearing a wedding ring. And when they took it off, they realised it was inscribed with MH151163 PH. So that was her initials and her husband's initials and the date of their wedding. So police very quickly were able to uh, associate it with a missing persons case of, of Margaret Hogg, who'd been reported missing by her husband, Peter, in 1976. So eight years earlier... And uh, they knocked on Peter's door and he was taken in for interrogation and capitulated fairly quickly and admitted to killing his wife. He knew Wasdale from his childhood and he knew about the abyss and for eight years had almost got away with it until she was discovered. But of course, that grabbed all the headlines. Everybody forgot about Veronique. And she was still still missing. Poor family were didn't know what happened to her, possibly thinking something similar. Uh, and it was two years later, it was uh, 1985, when a climber called Mike Parkin was climbing up the screes, and he got to the little platform just below Broken Rib, which is about a 1,000 feet above the lake, and he just saw something bright, and he thought it's a bit of clothing that's been washed out by the rain. He went over to it, and then he found Veronique. It was an accident, tragic accident, but she'd fallen from the top of Broken Rib. It was almost as if the mountain had taken it, her to a bosom you know she was wrapped in the heather and nobody had seen her until her, her rucksack perished and the clothing spilled out and that's what gave her away but I did speak uh, just on Facebook to one of the policemen who worked here and he said it was just nobody had given up you know they couldn't find her everyone but they were convinced she was here somewhere it was, it was just a tremendous relief that they could give her family closure Well, we've made it to the top of Ilgil Head. No outcrop here, but quite a sizeable ragged cairn on a bit of moorland with ewes dotted around, herdwick ewes, so we're not alone. And the view? Well, it's there in part. Certainly, Scorfell's presence is obvious. You can see slight side and long green and the essence of the summit, but all else is lost. In fact, although we, when we were coming along, we kept looking back and we could see the edge, which looked ever so dramatic in parts, just the very lip of it with the cloud billowing up. 
and we look back towards Winrig. But it's a long saddle, you know, some fells like Blencather have got a short saddle. This is over a mile long. Now, George, we started off with the oldest guidebooks. There are a few younger guidebooks that we need to get to grips with, and one particular one. It wouldn't be complete, would it, without discussing Alfred Wainwright, or A.W. as he preferred. What's interesting to me, I think, if you really read Wainwright, you could argue that it's part of the athletic thing, it's getting people to climb the mountains rather than just admire them. But I think, almost more than anyone, Wainwright completely understands the sublime. And in fact, it's fitting that we're looking at Scorfell now. Two of the most telling passages in Wainwright are about Scorfell Pike and Scorfell. Mm-hmm. Um, and on the top of Scorfell Pike, he asked the question, which is at the core of all of this, why do men climb mountains? And it was men in his day. We'll take that as people. But his answer is beautiful. And he says, they find something in these wild places that can be found nowhere else. It may be solace for some, satisfaction for others. The joy of exercising muscles that modern ways of living have cramped, perhaps, or a balm for jangled nerves in the solitude and silence of the peaks, or escape from the clamour and tumult of everyday existence. It may have something to do with man's subconscious search for beauty, growing keener as so much in the world grows uglier. It may be a need to readjust his sights, to get out of his narrow groove and climb above it, to see wider horizons and truer perspectives. You can feel that every day you get on the fells. It lifts the spirits. You feel part of something genuine. Yeah. And he goes further, below Scorfell Pinnacle on Mickledore, which, of course, we talked about O.G. Jones there. This is where Wainwright actually mentions the sublime. And he says, A man may stand on the lofty ridge of Mickledore, or in the green hollow beneath the precipice, amidst the littered debris and boulders fallen from it, and witness the sublime architecture of buttresses and pinnacles soaring into the sky, silhouetted against racing clouds, or often, as today, tormented by writhing mists, and, as in a great cathedral, lose all his conceit. It does a man good to realise his own insignificance in the general scheme of things, and that is his experience here. So in a real sense, I think you could say, we've witnessed the complete 360 degrees of sublime. I think, I think that's right. At the heart of it is what he says there. We have this religious impulse and we've become a secular society. People talk about religion of making you feel tiny, insignificant and humble. And humbling, I think, is the major effect of the sublime. We've become very cut off. Modern living divorces us from nature, from its cycles, from everything. The mental health benefits of great outdoors and getting out and walking and communing with nature and whatever are really well understood. I mean, we have GPs now prescribing country walks ahead of antidepressants and mm. is this sort of thing that we default on. Modern cities are are places of perpetual light and heat and noise and everything's available no matter what the season. And it's it's actually, it's abnormal. The number of people who suffer with seasonal adjusted syndrome, yeah, and and feel there's something wrong with them, well, actually, that's probably normal. That's Mm. probably natural. What's abnormal is us forcing to be up all the time. The world goes to sleep at, at winter. You know, animals hibernate. If we feel withdrawn, that's probably normal. If we're full of the joys of spring common expression yeah, and we <laughs> put on weight yeah. in the winter to keep ourselves going that's right yeah, and we forget why we do these things and we forget we will feel this way and just coming out here suddenly all the stresses disappear it makes you feel tiny but by feeling tiny all the silly things you've been worrying about go, don't they
journey's end. We're at Walsdale Head. Well, it's been a wonderful walk for all the dampness and the mist. And the birds are singing as if it was spring. And you know, I rather fancy it is. Got this lovely blooming gorse here. And for me, one of the highlights of the day, and it very much fed into the theme of the sublime, was this ever-shifting cloud. And we kept getting these great views, didn't we, in vistas after we came out of the clag. It's been really quite a special day. They were just ghostly shapes and we knew what spells they were and on a glorious summer's day they would be smiling at you but today they were just quietly draped in great mantle of clouds so it's one of those days where it tantalizes you and the topic itself very interesting this thread isn't it of the sublime that gets kind of reinterpreted through different generations key figureheads that kind of run with this concept and try and work out that question and George raised it via Wainwright I think you know what is it about mountains that evokes this response and what is that response and how can we kind of quantify it it was really interesting to hear the different voices through different ages they all were reflective of their time and they were Mm. sort of pioneers of thought in their time it's not going to be a thing that ends people will start reinventing, questioning what is our relationship with wild places. Yeah, absolutely right. And I wonder if some of the newer you know, our latest generations thinking, I wonder if it's books that start thinking perhaps about some of the rewilding and stuff, you know, that is that a new way of us thinking about a, a wilder landscape you yeah. know, maybe that's where thinking's going now. Right, uh, normal housekeeping, we are on episode number Oh, this is a 79. Oh, yeah. Coming up to the big eight zero. Uh, for previous episodes, www.countrystride.co.uk. We are on social media. At Countrystride1 on Facebook and Twitter. And what you'll get for this one is a lovely moody linescape, I guess, Mark, but also the map if you want to follow the route we did, which was a fine wander through all kinds of different um, landscape features. Absolutely fabulous walk. If you like what we do and you want to support us, there are three key ways. You can share this. You can tell people about the podcast. Secondly, you can buy our books from our little range, our boutique range of walking guidebooks, which manage to mix a little bit of culture, history, heritage uh, with the walk itself. So it's kind of like a written country stride episode Mm. in a way, isn't it? A little bit of both of us in each one. Yes, that's true. There is a little (laughs) bit. Which bit's your bit? Um, my name on the cover, I think. <laughs> no, they, no, there's a few drawings in them. And we have made a point of distinguishing ourselves from every other guide by just staying with the old-fashioned pen and ink. Okay, keeping it old school. Uh, and the final way, if you would like to support us, we have a Patreon account. So you can subscribe uh, and pay as little as £2 a month to uh, keep us doing these wonderful podcasts with fab guests and next up i think we are going to coniston water probably mark oh ransom marvelous mm. as well as an amazons how exciting we will be held to ransom that was you david i definitely did not say that listeners witnesses on that note we're saying goodbye from wasdale head under these lovely shifting skies and we'll see you next time on coniston water <laughs>